it's, it's good to be back with you. Uh, it, was, it was good to have off uh, last Sunday from preaching. Bo Collins did an excellent job uh, handling God's Word for us. Uh, we are going to be back in Exodus today, so uh, if you have a Bible with you, you're welcome to open that or, or turn that on to the book of Exodus. If you're new to the Bible or you don't have a Bible at all, uh, we'll have the words projected for you, so uh, no problems there. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, there's several new, new faces with us today. Uh, it is typically our practice to just preach through books of the Bible, and so uh, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus uh, for several months now, actually. And so uh, today we're picking up where I left off a couple of weeks ago, and we're in Exodus chapter 12. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and, and flag that down. Uh, before we read the text, let me a uh, small momentary glimpse into the life of your pastor and his, his past. Uh, I, I, I played a little bit of baseball growing up. For those of you that know me, you know that. That was, that was kind of my, my thing growing up. And, and, you know, I was the stature I am, probably less. Uh, even, I mean, I was a small baseball player, scrappy guy, like 140 pounds soaking wet, you know, slapped the ball. I was a bunting kind of guy. And, uh, you know, I had big aspirations of being a big leaguer. Um, I thought, thought it was a reality for me. And so I, I kind of geared my whole life towards baseball. And um, that wasn't really panning out well uh, until my senior year. Senior year of high school, I had a, I had a decent season. And uh, our team was pretty good. So we began getting some recognition. And played at Manzano. Any Monarchs out there? Come on. No? Not a single Monarch in the house? Where's Vivian? There we go. There we got some Monarchs here. Uh, and it was the, the defining moment of my career uh, was uh, postseason was at the North-South game. If you're, from, if you're from Albuquerque, you know about, or from New Mexico, you know the North-South game is kind of the big, it's kind of the all-star game for high school uh, athletes, baseball. And, and I was invited to, to, to do that. And, and I had a good game that day. And, you know, I just happened to get a couple hits, steal a couple bases. And there was, there was a, co- a college coach in the stands that, that, that recognized me a little bit. So that, for me, that game was the defining moment for my, what would be a short-lived baseball career. Uh, the, the, the rest of the career, that's another story at another time. Um, but but I, I would get a, a small little scholarship to go up, play ball at, at, in, in Vegas at, at Highlands. And, and, but, but that game in my life was the defining moment for me. Like Looking back, I, I knew that that was the, the thing that, that really shaped and defined my, my career. Um, the passage we are about to read today in Exodus chapter 12 is the defining moment for God's people in history. It's, it's the one that even Orthodox Jews today would identify this passage, this historical event, as the very thing that would shape and identify God's people from, from there forward. It's, it's, the, it's the exit of event. It's, it's the thing that this book is named after. So let's, let's read today's passage, beginning in, in verse 33 of chapter 12 in the book of Exodus. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. 
And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him now to bless the preaching of it. Father, we, we need your help. Lord, we need you to give us faith to trust what you say. And so, Lord, we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would open eyes, that you would soften hearts, that you would unstop ears so that we could see and believe beautiful things from your, from your word today. And we pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may remember um, a handful of years ago, I think it was roughly 2013 or so, uh, the story um, out, of, out of Ohio was there were several women that were held captive in a man's home for, for over a decade. Uh, the man's name was Ariel Castro. You may, may or may not be familiar with this. Well, uh, a couple of those, those women, one by the name of Amanda Berry, uh, wrote a book, uh, a memoir uh, of her survival and escaping this captivity that she was in for a decade to this, to this man. She was, she was kidnapped um, and held captive uh, in her teens up until her late 20s. And, and I was reading, uh, I did not read the whole book. I don't think I could stomach that. In fact, I don't think I would even recommend reading it. Um, but, but I read a, through a little section of it. It was posted online somewhere. And she's, she's really describing um, her life in captivity. She's describing what it was like to live under the control of this man, and uh, like I said, very difficult to read, not, not an easy thing to read. You, you almost, you, be, you become nauseous reading some of the, the account, but there was, this, there was a line that really struck a chord with me. Uh, she was talking about how th- there, were, there were three total women in his captivity. She was one of them, and she was talking about how he, he had really developed relationships, for lack of a better word, with these three different women, and she was talking about how um, the relationship within her captivity had formed with, with her, her captor. And she said this um, about him having these other women in the home. She said that, I wanted to kill him, but I also wanted to be with him. And at first it struck me as odd, you know, as, a, as an outsider reading this account, how could you want to be with him? Uh, but then it, it got me thinking about what life in captivity does to a person and how that really wrecks people internally. And, and I began to understand it, that, that, that this was the life she had grown to accept. Uh, this was what was normal to her. And she longed for affection and acceptance like, like every other human being. And this was her circumstance. And so on the one hand, she knew her circumstances were dire and desperate, but on the other, she kind of loved them. 
There was something that she grew an affinity towards in her captivity. See, um, life in Egypt for the Israelites um, was probably very similar. It probably wrecked them internally in a number of ways. But it, but it also began to reshape their identity. Like, this is, this is life. And, and life for God's people in the Old Testament in captivity and life for God's people today uh, in captivity are, are very similar on a number of levels. And obviously, they're shockingly different on a, on a number of different levels. But I, but I think as we're, as we're thinking about the Israelites leaving captivity and bondage and enslavement in Egypt and headed to what God has promised them, a better life, I think you and I will resonate with them more than you may realize. Um, I mentioned this early, early on in, in this sermon series, how, how, how the life and the world in which we live is not all that much different than Egypt. Uh, you, could, you could even say that we, we are currently still living in Egypt. Um, the, the, the precarious and fallen ways of life in a fallen world is the things that Israel was experiencing. It's the things that you and I experience daily. Now, um, the, the thrust of, of the Exodus event has more to do with what I would say corporate level sin than more private and individual sin, though there's implications there. And so uh, I, I, would, I would say this, I would remind you that this, this bondage that, it, that the Israelites are in was not due to anything that they had necessarily done. Uh, that, that God had called a man, Abraham, in Genesis 15. He had raised up a deliverer in Moses for his people. But, but this was all their inherited circumstances. And so you and I, we inherit circumstances too. Um, you, you think just, again, high-level corporate type of stuff. Uh, we live in a, a, a desperately broken governmental system. Not, this is not a political statement, just... Just humanly speaking, in our country and others, uh, though there are good things that come out of human government, I'm not, I'm not an anarchist, um, but, but we see kind of this, this divisive brokenness that's, that's riddled throughout it. Um, I mean, think even a little bit more personally, like our, our physical bodies in, in some way is a remnant of living in a fallen world. Now, I'm not, again, not being like Gnostic and like we should just be spiritual and bodies are bad, um, but, but in many ways... Some of us here are experiencing pain and suffering and just the, the decaying of our physical bodies. And so in some way, that's an inherited thing living in a fallen world. Uh, workplace, workplaces are just splintered with, you know, cliquish factions or, or political um, divisions or, or whatever that looks like. The, the point is, death and darkness are all around us all the time. And it was the same for, for Israel. And this, this event is the, the silver lining of the dark circumstances. And it, and it should be more than a silver lining for you and I. Uh, here's, here's how I want to handle the passage today. We're going we're gonna to look just at a few kind of observations and, and tie them together at the end. Observations about the event. Here's what I want us to look at today. Three things. One, I want us to look at the irony of freedom. I want us to look at the necessity of others, and then finally the vigilance of the Lord. So let's, let's look at the irony first. Um, 
you pick up on verse 33, uh, it doesn't come out so much in our English, but the Hebrew word translated about the Egyptians were urgent to get the people out of the land. Let me remind you just, just quickly what just happened. So the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Okay, so, so God's death plague has fallen over the land of Egypt. Uh, Israel has been excluded because the blood of the lamb has covered their homes, right? And, and Egypt is now experiencing uh, just judgment on a level that they never had tasted before. And, and here, the language of the passage is that the Egypts were urgent to get them out. That's an understatement. It, it's actually the same word that's used to describe Pharaoh's hardened heart in the plagues prior. So the Egyptians were hardened. They were heavy to get the Israelites out. Why? We shall all be dead. They had come, they'd come face to face with Yahweh. They had seen judgment play out in their land and they said, you know, get them out. We, 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 we cannot have the Israelites in here. Um, here's, where, here's where the irony in, in my mind kicks in. Um, if you've been with us, you'll remember this, but God long ago and even again in Exodus had reminded the people, hey, when I deliver you and it's going to happen, you're going to leave with all their riches. And so let's just, let's just traffic in their, in their life for a moment here. Uh, so this is the night after the death of the firstborn, and the Israelites are now to go and, and knock on doors of, of grieving families with, with, with literally dead people in their homes and say, give us all your goods. And um, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't speculate too much with what that sounded like, but I can't imagine it was with too much confidence. Like the Israelites kind of just shuffle up to the door and, and hey, uh, by the way, we're leaving and we need you to give us all your riches. <laughs> like, I, I can't imagine that was received well, but, but the text says that, that the Israelites plundered the Egyptians. I mean, think about the thick irony of this. This is a people group that has known nothing but enslavement in Egypt for over 400 years. They've been under the oppression of the man, as it were, the most powerful unit in, in history to that point, and now they're saying, give us your goods and we're going. And it happens. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, the, it's the irony of the gospel a little bit. Let me, let me just kind of just insert this in right here. Um, so, so if God was going to fully and finally deliver his people, like if, if Exodus is just a shadow of the things to come, or just a, a glimpse in the window of a, of a grander plan, which we believe it is, how would God finally and fully liberate his people? Well, well the predictable way and the, and the way that the, the Jewish people expected their savior to come was through political heroism, right? So, so a political leader would come on the scene. Or, or maybe, maybe it would even just be just a, a religious warrior, somebody who's just a cultural fighter. Like he's going to come in, he's going he's to kind of police morality and just kind of make things the way they should be. Or, or maybe it would, it would be a military hero, right? Somebody who's just going to come in and just take everyone out at the knees and like, I'm going to show you the way it is. That, that would be the predictable story. But the irony of the gospel and the irony of the Exodus event is that God said, you know what? Here's how I will finally and fully deliver my people. I'll take the oppression on myself. I will bear 
the punishment that should have gone to, to my oppressors. I'll take it on my own back. Now, now that begins to lay out this, this thick irony that God, the way that he works to deliver his people is not through the ways that we would, that we would predict. So we see the irony of it a bit. But the second thing we see is the necessity of others. Um, the journey begins uh, in what, what the text identifies as Ramses and Succoth. Now, if you're, if you're biblically uh, astute and you've been paying attention, you'll know, you'll remember that Ramses was uh, one of the, city, the store cities that the Israelites were building. I mean, they built this city. Not on rock and roll, but they built this city. <laughs> Journey, you got that. I thought that was going to fall flat. They built this city, um, and and it was on their own backs. In which in which I mean, there's some more irony there, right? So God God had kind of turned the events where you were the ones that labored over the city, and now now you're leaving it. Um, and and there appears to be a, a just a formidable amount of people that that went. Um, now, the, let me just kind of, a, this is going to feel teachy for a minute, but I spent a whole day reading on this, so I feel, I feel obligated to share some sort of uh, wisdom on this. So the text says that it was 600,000 men on foot besides women and children who left. Um, now, before I dive any deeper into this, um, we're, we're going to talk about what that number means. Let me just say this up front, and I'm going to close with it again before I get back on the trail. You can trust your Bibles, okay? So this is, this is not... Like, uh, well, can we really trust what the Bible says? But, but the amount of people here hinges on the, on the translation on two simple words, okay, in, in Hebrew. I won't, I won't fancy you with that. But basically, is it 600,000 or is it 600 tribes, families, flocks? There, there's a variety of translations there. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, and then the second word is, is the men on foot, so most commentators agree that this was men who were able to go into combat to carry arms. And so the, the, the range of the size of this group, now, now the text I'm reading from, the English Standard Version, translate it thousand. So if you read the text plainly, it says 600,000 men on foot, plus besides their women and children. And so most who would translate it that way would estimate that number to be upwards of 3 million people. Okay, That's a lot of people. That's like more than three times the size of our metropolitan and surrounding areas, okay? So, so here, here's what I'm suggesting. Um, it might be less than that. It was still clearly a large number. I mean, you remember Pharaoh was saying, hey, these Israelites are multiplying in ways that they're beginning to threaten our existence. So it was a large number, maybe not three million. So I would say, so, so the, the, the range of people, and I, this is going to be important, I'm, I'm getting to the point at some point, uh, the range of people is probably from about 15,000 people, um, which is like the size of the pit filled up with people. So about 15,000 people to 3 million people. So how many were in there? I don't know. Uh, I'm okay with that. I spent a whole day reading on it. Nobody comes to a consensus on it. Let's just say this. There were a lot of people. There was a lot of people. And, um, and there were a lot of people, but, but I mean, again, I just kind of keep reminding you, remember what happened the night before. I mean, imagine the small talk on the, on the travel road. 
These people are walking, again, obvious, obvious reminder there. These people are walking, and you imagine, you know, they're kind of, they're on the road, they're like, all right, we're headed out, and you, you know small chat, chat had to happen, so uh, how'd, last, how'd last night go for you? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, we did, that, we did that whole lamb thing, that was, you know, the kids were scared, you know, like, I mean, I, I could just imagine that the tension was a little, little weird on that road out, like, they had just watched the death blow fall on the land and the people in whom they knew and worked with, and now they're walking out into the wilderness. Um, but, but the other thing that, that happened, I don't know if you picked up on this, but it's important, verse 38, a mixed multitude also went up with them. So, so this isn't just Israelites by birth anymore. There's some Egyptians that are in the mix here. Now, that might not mean much to you, uh, but it ought to. Um, because, you see, what, what, what God was beginning to do here was showing how his people would value diversity. Like, let's just, for a moment, Egyptians, cultural background, different. Political background, different. Ethnic background, different. I mean... I mean, and you, can, and you know that they were, they were in this group. And so God begins to show how his people would reflect diversity. Um, let, me, let, me, let me tie some of this to our lives. What, what I think was happening, again, a little speculation, you know, the narratives don't always give us all the background. And, but, but, but I think what was happening was, was people were, were talking on the road. I think they were probably sharing stories of how God worked specifically the night before. Did you hear the, the cries in Egypt? Can you believe we went to their doors, knocked on them while they're grieving, and they gave us all their riches? Can you believe God would do that? Can you believe, look at this vast amount of people. We are walking out of the land which has held us captive for 400 years. Can you believe what God is doing in our midst? I can only imagine that is what it felt like as they were leaving the land. Now for you and I, when is the last time you heard someone share a story of what God is doing in their life? Some of you think of them. You, you, you have them. And you think about how that has impacted your journey of faith. How the very thing that would carry your foot in front of the next one, not knowing where you're headed, is the stories that are surrounding you. Now, some of you can't think of a story like that. Some of you want those to be your own stories, but you certainly can't think of anyone else who shared a story like that with you. And what I would suggest is that God designed community, what we would call community, or, or people around you, believers around you, to be the very thing that would carry you on your journey. And, and to go even further, people that are not like you. So people with, because here, here's, here's the deal. We are really good at, at hanging out with people that, that are just like us, Right? They believe like us, they think like us, they vote like us, they look like us. That's really easy. What's, what's not hard is that mixed multitude thing 
that God shared. He kind of splashed in there on us. So what would it look like for you to share your journey with people who don't vote like you? Sounds kind of intense for some of you. What would it look like for you to invest relationally with people who don't live like you, who have a different social class, a different zip code, shoot a different language? Try crossing those barriers. See, here's how you and I operate. Um, We operate a lot like a Chinese finger trap. Remember those? Remember those Chinese finger traps? Man, those things still amaze me. So for those of you that weren't privy to the 80s and 90s, um, I don't know if they're still making them. Chinese finger traps were these these bamboo kind of laced tubes where you'd get somebody to stick their fingers into them. And, and it would trap their fingers. But, but I know you're all feeling it now. Um, <laughs> you put your fingers in there, right? And what's your first instinct to, to do to, to get out of it? Get away. I'm out. And what happens immediately? Clamps down on you. The way to get out of a finger, Chinese finger trap, if you've never done this, you're going to be a genius because now you can go get one and do it. The way to get out of a Chinese finger trap is to move to the middle to squeeze and it loosens it up. See, you and I, when, when life is hard, when all that's around us is darkness and dreary, our method of escape is to run, is to move away from people, is to give us more margins. I don't have time for that. How could I do a com- community circle when my life is already jammed? Right? There's no space to have dinner on a weeknight. How does that even happen? But the very thing that God has designed for us to escape the entrapment around us is to move in the middle towards others because we need each other. And we need the stories of what God is doing in our lives to give us the step of faith to go where we don't know where th- what, what lies ahead of us. That's what these people are doing. But the third thing that we see from this passage is the, vig- the vigilance of the Lord. I want some of you, for those of you that are parents, uh, whether you're newborn parents or old-born parents, um, I want you to think about the first night that you had your uh, newborn in your home. I know, all the, all the feels, right? Um, the first night, so you've been maybe in the hospital or, or maybe if, if your children came into the home through adoption or whatever that looks like for you. Um, the first night in the home, you no longer have nurses or doctors or family. It's like, it's like you guys, right? And um, you, I, I, I'm thinking it's not just me. I'm thinking it's all of us. But you, you, the baby goes down maybe in the evening hours to sleep. And what are you doing? You're kicked back, you know, having a glass of wine out in the back patio, relaxing, right? No, no. You are on standby like no other. You're, you're, like, you're like over the crib looking. Like, I think I see the chest moving. I think I see movement, right? Like, the only way I can describe what that night looks like for you is vigilance. You are vigilant watching over your child. Every little moment, because, because you love them like you've never loved anything before. 
Um, The first night in the wilderness for the Israelites, God makes it very clear, verse 42, it was a night of watching by the Lord. I mean, that's just the picture that came to my mind that God was vigilantly watching his children. Now, you know, in, in one sense, God is always watching all things. He is. Like, he's a God who rules over all of his creation. He never takes an eye off of anything. But you would, you would be remiss if you would say that the scriptures don't somehow show that God has an extra vigilant watch on his people. That, that he is leaning over their lives, peering into them, making sure that they're cared for. And the question we ought to be asking is why? And here is why. Because as we sing sometimes in that hymn, we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God that we love. Um, and, and, and even kind of the, the, the level underneath that, why? Why are we prone? Like why, why is it that we want to leave God's care? It seems like he's doing all these good things in our lives. Why is that? And here's why. Here's my assessment of why. We are control freaks and we're impatient. Okay? We, I mean, and this is me, so I am pinning myself on the wall. We are control freaks. In other words, we like to know that we have got everything under wraps. Right? Like, like the timeline of our life is going according to my plan that I've laid out for it. So we, we, we manipulate and we control those things. And we're also very impatient. We want these things to work out rather quickly. We'll pray We'll discuss, we'll think about things, we'll ask, ask the Lord for his help, but at the end of the day, if it doesn't come fast enough, you're going to work circumstances so that they favor you. And what God begins to, to show us um, is that he's in control, one, and that it's according to his timeline, two, because we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks. Where are they headed? They're headed to the promised land. But does God take them to the direct route? No, he does not. Spoiler alert for those of you that haven't read this before. They're going the long route, okay? There's some detours. There's some hardship ahead of them. God is in control. It's according to his timing. See, this is why um, religion, you know, I kind of, I bash on religious people all the time because I know that's me. This is why religion is so appealing to a lot of people. See, and when I say religion, I would, I would, I, I'm, I'm kind of stereotyping here, but I would say it, it's an attempt to manipulate and control God through the means of spiritual things. So religion is extremely appealing to people who want control. Because if I read my Bible enough, or if I would pray more, or if I would just go to those darn community circles Adam keeps talking about, or if I would have perfect attendance at church, whatever religious activity, fill in the blank, somehow that's going to manipulate God to, to move things according to my timetable. That's why religious is very appealing, but, but, but for the non-religious person, and I know you're in here, um, you're thinking, yeah, I get all those religious people, Adam. For the non-religious people, the very same things at play, it just looks different. Well, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the police of my morality. I'll determine how my life ought to go. And so what it is, is it's a self-deception that you are under in control. It's a false sense that you are somehow dictating your life. 
Let me, let me close with these thoughts. What I, think, what I think this passage does for us as they move into the wilderness, I'm out of captivity, into wilderness wanderings. What I think it does is it calls God's people to be people who are waiting and watching for God. I mean, the scriptures time and time again, particularly it gets heavy in the New Testament, of people who are anticipating the return of God. And um, here, here's what you need to know, that, that, that the exodus, the exodus is a small shadow, a, a little glimpse, a historical reality of a greater spiritual truth of something that God has done through his son, the Lord Jesus. That, that God would fully and finally eradicate evil. Like, if you're here today as a Christian, here's your hope. Here's what you are waiting and watching for. The Lord to return, for justice to roll down the mountains, for righteousness to thunder aloud, and for God's kingdom to fall on earth. For everything sad about our lives, every devastating reality that you and I have tasted, every bittersweet hurt that still resides within us will be made right. It will be undone. So what is our disposition? What is our waiting and watching to look like? Well, it's to trust and it's to depend. It's what the Israelites are going to have to do. It's what you and I are going to have to do until everything sad comes untrue. Let's pray and ask that he would, that he would do that in our lives. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we read stories in the Old Testament and they seem, they seem so distant from us just doesn't seem like our reality, doesn't seem like our experience, but Lord, we thank you that you've given us these treasured stories because they speak of the greater story, because they point us to the one who would bring his people out of bondage and into freedom, who would release the shackles of sin and evil and the tyranny of darkness, and who would bring us into the kingdom of light. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the Israelites in the Old Testament and to see ourselves all over these pages. Lord, that as we are walking together in the wilderness, that we would see how important we are to each other, that we would see your vigilant care over us, and that because of those two things, you would make us a waiting and watching people when everything sad will come untrue. Lord, help us to believe it. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Amen.